Well, we are continuing our series. Continuing our series on windy days. Uh, continuing our series this morning on the life of Abraham. Uh, we are asking some important questions. We're asking, what does it mean to have faith in God? What does a life of faith look like? Because Abraham is called our, our forefather in the faith and the father of everyone who believes. And so we're trying to figure out what does the life of faith look like? And as we quickly, if, you, if you've been around for our series in the life of Abraham, you're probably aware uh, it's not always pretty. There, there's some highs. Yes, there are some lows as well. Abraham believes and doubts and then believes again, uh, this sort of never-ending cycle. And this morning, uh, we, we are looking at another phase. We're, we're near the end of Abraham's life, just this week and next week. Uh, before we kind of kick off some some stuff for the summer, and so we're we're seeing Abraham, but we're also seeing the God in which in whom Abraham believes. So this morning, our scripture reading is on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Of course, if you're using the digital version, just scroll down; it'll be right there. It's from Genesis 21. Russ is going to come and read it for us. Russ, if you would. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy because of your, and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bowshot, For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt.
we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text. But just to remind you, if you need to move to more shade, if you need to come grab some ice water, as Russ is doing right now, please feel free to do that. We want you to, uh, to be comfortable. No heat stroke, nothing like that during the service today. Uh, one of the main works in the Christian life is to discover how God is working in all aspects of our lives. I mean, some of it's pretty obvious, right? We can often spot how God is at work in, say, a church service or a small group or a merciful act towards someone who's in need. We can spot how God is at work in our private devotional lives or a phone call to a friend who's going through a hard time. Uh, sometimes God and his work are obvious. But what about the times and places where God's work is less obvious? How exactly does he work in all the in-between moments? What about when you're driving to church or walking to church? What about in regular meals around dinner tables? What about the job that you go to that's not great but pays the bills? Is God there? And if he is, how is he working? Well, I wonder if you're familiar with what's commonly called St. Patrick's Breastplate, which is not a piece of armor, you know, sadly for anyone who's into armor, but it's a hymn and a prayer that emerged from Ireland around the 5th century. We aren't sure if Patrick wrote it, uh, but it bears his name nevertheless. It's quite long. I'm not, I'm not going to read all of it to you. I want to read just a section of it right near the end. And it, so he's sort of praying. It's sort of a chant, something he's singing. But he says this. He says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. What, what St. Patrick is getting at, or whoever wrote it, is that not that Christ is physically near you on your right hand or on your left, but that as a Christian, you're working to cultivate this view of God working through every aspect of your life, even as you lay down to, your, to sleep. God somehow at work there in every conversation, every walk around your block. See, we arrive near the end of Abraham's life. There's a collection in this story of joyful and difficult moments. There's great joy over the long promised birth of Isaac. But there's soon conflict in the family. There are desperate times in the wilderness. And in all these things, God is at work. And we know he's at work because he speaks and he acts and he intervenes. And I think that as we look at how God is working in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and, their, and their, their little boys, we see how he's working in our lives as well. We see how he can use all kinds of events to bring about his work in us. So there are three events in the passage today uh, we're gonna, that'll form our outline this morning. But first, I want to talk about God in our joys. Secondly, God in our conflicts. And third, God in our daily bread. Now, chapter 21 is opened with the conception and birth of Isaac. And as most of you are aware, conception and birth, that's nine months or nine months-ish. But the narrator compresses that all into one verse. It happens right there. But what I want to show you is that there's a triple confirmation. There's a, a three-timed confirmation that this conception, this birth, is indeed God's work. It says the very first words, the Lord visited Sarah. As he had said. Now, visited in this case doesn't mean that he's, you know, stopped by for tea and crumpets, but you can also translate that word gracious. God was gracious to her. And if you've been with us, you know all the difficulties Sarah has been going through. This verse implies God is overcoming whatever was causing Sarah's infertility. He's, he's enabling biological processes of some kind that lead to the conception and then the birth of a child. He's gracious to her, just like he promised. Then in the second half, it's kind of repeated, the Lord did to Sarah as he promised, reiterating the same thing. And then in verse 2, Sarah conceives, she bears a child, a son to Abraham in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So three times it says God had spoken to Sarah and Abraham, he'd made them promises, and now here he is coming through. 
the, the first thing we notice here is that in the life of faith, we can expect God to come through in what he's promised us. And we have to be careful because many of the things we want, God has not actually promised. Many of the things we hope for, many of the things we expect, they're not actually promised to us by God. We are not promised children or land or a promotion or whatever your good life definition is. Temporal blessings, blessings in this life, they're possibilities, but they're not promises. So when I say God is faithful to his promises, which promises am I referring to? Well, if you look through the pages, especially of the New Testament, here are a couple things we're promised. We're promised God's love. We're promised his care. We're promised his presence with us in the midst of whatever we face. We're promised that he will be with us to the very end of the age. We are promised that God will hear our prayers that he will provide escape from temptation, and so on. These are the things we get to lean on, that God fulfills his, these kinds of promises and keeps his word. But then look at the outcome. See how joyful and, or joyful and sweet it is when God fulfills his promises, and Abraham and Sarah get to, get, get to see it. If you look at verse 5, Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born. I don't think anyone here is 100, but just imagine someone older than the oldest person here having a child. And it had actually been 25 years since the original promise was made in northern Syria. Imagine trying and failing to get pregnant for 24 years and three months or so. But now the baby boy has come. And of course, look at verse 6. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. This laughter thing has come up all the times in, in, in the story of, of Abraham and Sarah. And in the past, we know Sarah laughed with bitterness and cynicism. She laughed in a disbelieving way, but now she laughs in wonder because God has provided. There's this overflowing joy when God fulfills his promises and the joy is shared. Sarah says, everyone who finds out is also going to laugh. And they're not going to laugh meanly. They're also going to laugh with wonder, with astonishment that a 90-year-old woman could conceive and become a mother. God works and is working in our joys. He works in fulfilled promises. He works in the birth of long-delayed children. Now, how exactly does God work in our joys? Let me go into a couple of the details to show you how it happens. When we receive a pleasure in this life, from a cup of cold water on a hot day to, uh, to larger pleasures like, you know, the birth of a child or a marriage or a, a, a promotion or whatever. We have two options. We can, be, we can choose gratitude or ingratitude. See, in the moment of the joy, in the moment of the pleasure, we can fixate on the pleasure itself and think, you know, we've earned this. We deserve this. Or we can take a moment to be thankful to the God who created such a joy. And you don't have to find a Bible verse for every pleasure. I'm just saying the attitude of a grateful Christian is what type of God would create a world where we'd have both shining and frigid winter days and smoldering summer afternoons? What sort of creativity and imagination does that take? Gratitude means that we run along the beams of our pleasure to find the God who stands behind them all. See, when Sarah has a baby boy, she says, God has made laughter for me. There's a simultaneous delight in, in sort of the baby in her arms and the God who gave her that baby. And when Abraham sees his son, you know, eight days later, he circumcises him in obedience to what God had commanded him to do. Because he knows as well, this boy is a gift from God. Gratitude or ingratitude. Now, how can you practice this? I'll give you something concrete. You might, the next time you are praying, just ask a simple question. What are some of the pleasures I've experienced this week? And just make a list. 
big, small, whatever. And if you have kids, kids you'll find are often really good at this because they're thankful for all sorts of things that adults normally take for granted. They can be actually really good at naming pleasures. But if you're on your own, if you're with your family, it doesn't really matter. Take a moment to make a list and to be thankful and grateful to God, noting that all these pleasures actually come from him. You know, one of the detrimental effects of pandemic life is that I think it's made a lot of us, and myself included, inordinately focused on the negatives. Because all, all, we, all we think about, all we hear about is case counts or deaths or all the things that are still closed, all the things we can't do, all the harm that's been done in many different areas. And of course, there's a time for mourning. Of course there is. But what pleasures do you get to experience? Quiet morning, coffee, warm evenings, campfires, like whatever it is, there is a God who stands behind all these pleasures. And as you see in Abraham and Sarah's life, he is the one who has put laughter and joy into our mouths. And so God calls to us in our pleasures. Now, part two, God in our conflicts. No sooner has Isaac been born, but conflict arises. See, a year or so passes in verse eight, Isaac is weaned and they throw a great feast. Now, this isn't really a point I'm making today, but I think for one, we should bring back feasts on the day of weaning. And maybe you can debate that around the dinner table today if you think that's a good idea or not. We need more feasts in our lives though, I think. But, but during this feast, during this celebration, um, Ish, uh, Sarah spies Ishmael, the son of Hagar, if you remember. And by this point, he's a teenager, 13, 15, we're not exactly sure, something like that. And he's laughing. And again, this word uh, comes up again, uh, laughing and laughter. They're used all over the place in all sorts of different ways. But Ishmael laughs and we aren't sure, is he, is he mocking Isaac? Is it a mocking kind of laughter? Is he playing with Isaac and treating him like a brother? We don't actually know, but there's something in the laugh that triggers Sarah. And she goes to, she goes to Abraham and takes what is sort of like a this strong position. You got to throw them out. You, you need to cast them out of our household. And if you've been with us through this series, you'll know there is long simmering tension between these two women. Because Abraham fathered both boys, but there's animosity, there's a history of contempt. It seems like it's been swept under the rug for a time, but it never appears to have been dealt with. And Sarah now perceives Ishmael to be a threat to Isaac. And Hagar and Ishmael, they're now caught in this sticky web. At, at one point, they were helpful. They were a way out. They were an end around solution, but now they're a problem. And they pose a threat to the line of Abraham and Sarah. They're in the way. Now, before you make your Team Hagar, or Team Sarah shirts and, you know, start fighting with one another, let's just take a moment to sympathize with both women. On one hand, Hagar was sort of used and is now being cast out. She wanted to protect her son. She's made a home in this household. And now she faces what we will soon see is extreme danger outside the camp. And on the other hand, Sarah remembers when Hagar treated her badly and kind of, sort of like lorded it over her that she had a child and Sarah didn't. And now that Sarah has a, a child, she wants to protect his future. And the older, stronger Ishmael might easily take his place. He might split the inheritance. Plus, Sarah has this spiritual argument. Well, God wants Isaac to be the heir. But, but when you kind of look at it, both have a point. Both have concerns. And the conflict is sort of inevitable. And Abraham, you see, is caught in the middle. If you look at verse 11, he's like conflicted. He doesn't want to send away Ishmael. It's, it's very displeasing to him. He loved that boy. He didn't want to lose his son. So who's right and who's wrong? Well, the answer, I think, actually is no one. <laughs> or perhaps more helpfully for, for today's uh, topic, that's not what God's concern is. 
The, conf- the conflict's going to happen. God tells Abraham, well, listen to Sarah, because Isaac's the heir. But also Ishmael will be protected. God will take care of him as well. So it's not exactly about being right or wrong. What I want you to see in the text is that God can work in the midst of conflict to take care of everyone involved. See, because of sin, because of the brokenness of our world, conflict happens. I'd be willing to bet that most of us have experienced more relational conflict in the past year, perhaps than in any other period of your life. Now, it's not going to be true for everyone, not universally true, but I've talked to enough uh, of you, enough people in the world, that I know it's true for lots of us. Because we had this new event, (laughs) right? None of us had ever lived through one before, maybe a 101-year-old, whatever, something. But, 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 but the accompanying medical and political and social and spiritual challenges, everyone's trying to respond to it and doing it differently. I bet this is true, but before March 2020, I had never had a conversation with a friend or a pastoral colleague or whatever about how to respond to a pandemic. I've never given one thought to masks. There was no seminary classes on dealing with church divisions over response to government interventions. Like we were all just making it up as we went. And because we were, it inevitably led to conflict with people in my life. Because we thought differently about one of the many aspects of of the pandemic. If we agreed on masks, then we disagreed on something else. And we disagreed on lockdowns, but we agreed on schooling or whatever. I, I, I just think that lots of you have lost friendships. Or friendships have been damaged. Family relationships are maybe strained because of differing opinions and approach to COVID. And I don't think, again, it's not about right or wrong. I think we'll be writing writing papers for decades on what, what we did right and what we did wrong. I am here to ask the question, what is God up to in relational conflict? What's he doing in the midst of all this? The sociologists, the medical professors, whatever, the politicians, they'll sort out the rest. Uh, We are the ones who is concerned to say, what what is God doing through all of this? So I want to suggest to you three ways that God normally works through relational conflicts because they all pop up in this story. Let me show you. First, relational conflict pushes you to interact with God. Did you see that? It's kind of of implicit, but the rise of conflict leads to Abraham talk to God. (laughs) It seems like maybe a minor thing to dwell on, but God gives, no, God helpfully gives Abraham direct advice like do this, don't do that. Even though we don't really get that kind of communication, conflict pushes us often toward prayer because we feel out of control. Things are out of our hands. Relational conflict, we have this person in our life, we can't control them, they disagree with us. Abraham is deeply perplexed and he goes to God with it. And when conflict arises in our lives, we should be carrying these things to God in prayer. In fact, the Apostle Peter explicitly tells us, cast your anxieties, cast your cares upon God because he cares for us. And the implication is, you're going to have anxieties. You're going to have conflicts. Your two wives will fight. You know, maybe not that last one so much. But, but conflict is going to happen. And this is now a golden opportunity to pray. So, do you have relational conflict with anyone because of COVID? Or just any other old kind of relational conflict, all the, the normal stuff? Bring that to God. Relational conflict is supposed to be this door to prayer. Not a reason we stop praying. So it pushes us to interact with God. Second, God works in relational conflict to help you see yourself more clearly. Now, I don't have an exact verse for this one, except to note that Abraham is clearly sensing discomfort in himself. He doesn't want to throw Hagar. He doesn't want to throw Ishmael out. He's trying to like find, is there a third way that he can kind of make everyone happy? Relational conflict often shows us what we value. 
It shows us something that was kind of under the hood of our lives that we may not have been aware of. Think of your life as a cup of coffee or if coffee isn't your thing, sparkling water, tea, you know, whatever, whatever your deal is. But what you normally see, the outside of your life is like the outside of a cup. Nice pottery, a clever joke, like whatever kind of coffee cup you have. What's inside the cup is what's normally inside of us. Um, which doesn't come out that often. And relational conflict, then, uh, it's like being bumped when you hold a cup of coffee. You've ever been walked and someone, someone bumps your arm while you're holding it. You know what happened or happens. The coffee sloshes, right? And, and it spills over the side. Now, here's a question. Does the bump cause the coffee to be in the cup in the first place? Well, no, no, of course not. The, the, it just simply revealed what was already there. And now everyone knows, the carpet knows, there was coffee in the mug. Relational conflict, it, it, it bumps your soul. It bumps your inner person. And it spills out what was already in there even though you didn't know it. So when you have a disagreement with your friend and what arises in you is indignation or anger or this fierce desire to, to defend yourself or just an inability to see their perspective, like those things didn't... They're not new. They were there all along. The bump just, just showed you. And those things sloshed out of your heart and into your life. Now, for a Christian, sometimes this is discouraging because like, oh man, like, look at the mess we made. But ultimately, this is God's work in our life because he is showing you what was there all along, but you just couldn't see it. But now you know, now it's all over the carpet. You know, now you know, and now God can work on it. And relational conflict helps us to see ourselves. And third, relational conflict pushes us to trust God. So Abraham's distressed. He doesn't want to throw them out. God tells them to, and he assures them, like Isaac's going to be okay. He's the child of the promise. We got him. But Ishmael will be okay as well. And in, if you look at verse 13, God says, I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman. Basically, God tells Abraham, these boys are not really in your control. They never were. <laughs> I mean, you pretended they were for a time, but now Abraham, you're going to have to trust me. You let them go, you send them away, I'll protect them. And by the way, come back next week for how God tests Abraham's trust with Isaac. He's got even bigger trust issues there. But relational conflict, it sometimes leads to the end of friendships or relationships, leads to physical or emotional distance between people. Sometimes a problem is not resolvable. And in those times, especially, a Christian is forced to trust God. You're forced to acknowledge you don't run the universe. <laughs> you have to lean on God. This happens in a lot of areas, but it happens with children. If you talk to an older parent, They'll tell you of both the joy and fear of watching an older child and then a teenager and then a young adult make decisions for themselves. You older parents know that as children age, you get less and less control. But parent or not, relational conflict, it pushes you to trust God because things spin out of your control. None of us go looking for conflict, but God can work through it. Now, finally, part three, God and our daily bread. So, Hagar casts Hagar, or Abraham, casts Hagar, and to keep all the names straight, Hagar and Ishmael out in verse 14. He gives Hagar some bread and water and sends her away, and she wanders in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, this, the skin of water he gives to her, it, it, you know, archaeology tells us it's probably a few gallons, uh, five, six, maybe seven liters of water at the most. In an arid environment, of course, that's quickly used up a day or two. And we read there that Hagar puts her teenager under a bush and walks away so she doesn't have to see him die. And then she weeps. 
and it's this poignant moment. And if you sort of just linger over that and imagine yourself in such a situation, you can feel the ache of her plight. She's about to die in the wilderness. She's about to watch her son die. And she's helpless, and she's out with, with, without daily bread. So we have a physical problem, of course. This woman and her son are about to die. But theologically, we also have a problem because God promised Abraham. He said, you send them away. I will take care of them. So is God unfaithful? Does he go back on his word? Is his arm too short to reach into the wilderness of Beersheba? No. In verse 17, God hears the voice of the boy. He speaks to Hagar from heaven. He directs her to a well and they survive. And God fulfills his promise. And the story today doesn't record the details, but we know historically Ishmael does go on to be a nation. He becomes the head of a, of a great people, a desert tribe. Thousands of years later, thousands of years after Ishmael, after Hagar, Jesus Christ, when teaching his disciples on what they should pray for, he says, you should ask God for your daily bread. You, you should ask God for the necessities of life, water, food, shelter. Such things are not below God. They're not beyond him. They're not too minuscule for him to pay attention to. Rather, we learn from this story, God delights to provide these things. When God comes through in the provision of daily bread type category things, it's undeniable. Hagar would have carried for the rest of her life this understanding that God can provide miraculously. She had witnessed these multiple direct interventions by God. When we come to God, seeing him, asking him for daily bread, we're acknowledging he's the source of our jobs. He's the source of our income. He's the source of a world which provides clean water, food grown on the earth. We subtly acknowledge we can't get these things on our own. They're from him. And when we thank God for it, when we ask him for it, we treat him sort of as the capital S source of all things. God works in our daily bread to help us see him as the creator and sustainer of all things. That's why, by the way, even the quick prayers before meals, even if they're kind of perfunctory uh, or whatever, they, they, they help work faith in us because they, they remind us, they subtly remind us to be grateful for, to a God who provides all things, including, you know, tacos or whatever's on the table. That he has arranged an earth full of flavors. He's given to humans ingenuity, excuse me, to craft dishes with all kinds of flavors. Have you ever stopped to consider the, of what other animal eats like us? Most animals just eat like one thing, grass, nectar, you know, other animals or whatever. But in, in a simple taco, we're combining, I mean, maybe not kids, but adults, we're combining five, six, seven, eight, you know, eight ingredients, all sorts of things. No one eats like we do. See, St. Patrick, he was determined to teach his little flock of Christians to see God in all areas of life. So he said, look for him on your right. Look for him on your left. Look for him when you lie down. Look for him when you sit up. The Christian life is about more than just these few hours on a Sunday plus some at-home reading and prayer. I'm not diminishing those things. Those things are extremely important, but we just need a wider view. The work of God includes our joys and our relational conflicts and our daily bread. It involves these things that we do not often think of as remarkable and deeply spiritual. After all, thousands of years after Abraham, the work of God would take an unusual turn. When Jesus goes to the cross, everyone is kind of confused. How could God be working through this? This is a failure, not a victory. The disciples go home defeated and lonely. They're not hopeful. Yet it's in this sort of strange moment that God does his greatest work. Paying for the sin of us all. Opening a way for us to be with God again. 
Friends, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that enables all I speak about today. In Jesus, we're assured God can take anything, good, bad, evil, righteous, boring, whatever, and turn it into spiritual good. In Romans 8, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's an astonishing thought to consider that God can take anything and use it for our good. It means he can take, take desperation in the desert and relational conflict and the birth of children, that he can use anything. He could also use COVID. He can, he can bend it to his purposes. He can use it as an instrument. It doesn't make the thing itself good, but it means that God can make something useful out of it. The Apostle Paul promises, again in Romans 8, if Christ has been raised from the dead, if the Spirit of God has been sent into our hearts, then God can use anything. So, go back to your normal lives. <laughs> go back to your own dinner tables. Go back to your friends. Go back to your pleasures and see the God at work in all of them. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we're grateful to you that you are indeed at work that you are doing things all around us. You, you, are, you are nudging us and helping us to become more like Jesus, your son. Help us to see it. And please continue your work in us. In Christ's name, amen.